during the time when history is said to have first been written down, that is guided by investigation rather than as the rhetoric polytrickery of the likes of Cicero. This would also be the time when the Scythians roamed the Eurasian link above the Caspian and Black Sea, and Hannibal came on his elephants. When dead but still war-hungry Alexander's general of Babylon, Seleucid, tried to reign that vast swath of land that had once been the Persian Empire. When the Maruians, at the geographic end of that Hellenistic domination by the sword, tried to unite the many nations of the South and Asian subcontinent, unconsciously paving the way for the Buddhist king Ashoka, that supposed lion who still sits on its throne of the Indian national emblem. This was also the time when the Wang kings of Yan, Chao, Han, Wei, Qi, Chu, Qin, all fought as warring states, which would culminate with Shi Huangdi, the yellow emperor who would command an army so big that it would not be matched until millenniums later by that short Frenchman, Louis something. But that's all an inconsistent mind map of war. More intriguing is that the Greek historian and rhetorician Theopompus shitcoated the much more famous Plato and his writings about a far away lost empire. Theopompus in his parody called this place Meropis. It could be assumed that he wrote it since his political protector and founder was the aforementioned Alexander. That Macedonian whom despite his perceived greatness would have had a tough time even becoming a lieutenant general in the armies of the opium-addicted Odepoli wall-building Shi Huangdi. Well, he and his political apparatus would for obvious reasons not have liked the circulation of Plato's talk of a greater materially existing non-Hellenistic somewhere else. That story of which I'm sure you are vaguely or thoroughly aware of. Allow nonetheless a small recap of the dialogues that take place in the works labeled Timaeus and Critias. For it is related in our records how once upon a time your state stayed the course of a mighty host, which starting from a distant point in the Atlantic Ocean, was insolently advancing to attack the whole of Europe and Asia to boot. For the ocean there was at the time navigable, for in front of the mouth, which you Greeks call, as you say, the Pillars of Heracles, there lay an island which was larger than Libya and Asia together, and it was possible for the travelers of that time to cross from it to the other islands, and from the islands to the whole of the continent over against them which encompasses the veritable ocean. For all that we have here, lying within the mouth of which we speak, is evidently a haven having a narrow entrance. But that yonder is a real ocean, and the land surrounding it may most rightly be called, in the fullest and truest sense, a continent. Now in this island there existed a confederation of kings, of great and marvelous power, which held sway over all the island, and over many other islands, and also 
parts of the continent. But afterwards there occurred violent earthquakes and floods, and in a single day and night of misfortune, all your warlike men in a body sank into the earth, and the island in like manner disappeared in the depths of the sea, for which reason the sea in those parts is impassable and impenetrable, because there is a shoal of mud in the way, and this was caused by the subsidence of the island. Now, I'll say this, and please don't be offended, for you will eventually, I hope, be rewarded. To hell with a confederation of kings, and to hell with the notion that the possible freest globe-spanning loose society of seafarers would have occupied themselves with building restraining metropolises, civilizations, or class societies. In short, if that is what the A word stands for, to hell with Atlantis. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty. And to impress him, takes on his multi-armed form and says, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. Hello and welcome again to the return of the repressed. We are back from the mountain of truth up in Switzerland and our Halloween special. Thanks again to the patrons and all of you who sent comments of encouragement and constructive critique. You are much appreciated and a solid aid to my state of isolation here in the Pacific Alps. I feel um, that our last end of our ticks all the boxes of what I promised to make out the short break before we get back to the Biological Peace and Warfare series. We had a love story and we had a cult. It wasn't Aum as expected, but uh, that series is taking longer than I thought. Um, I am, however, not ready to speak just yet on the matter of the earth and agriculture, so what better way to prolong this return to serious business than to talk more casually and uh, dreamy, though I promise you, not wishy-washy, <laughs> about the sea. I saw uh, recently mm, that uh, the very mesmerizing Graham Hancock, after having fought himself through decades of personalized witch hunting, some of which he deserves for appearing out of context on the very worst of shows such as ancient aliens and ancient civilizations, etc. Finally has landed himself his own documentary on Netflix. For what's that worth? Now, I admire this journalist's prose and the relative empirical restraint that he upholds in comparison with many of his more fringe colleagues. With that being said, 
he is ultimately way too much of an idealist historian for my taste. And we saw in the last episode just where that can take us. I don't know how it is in America or Asia, but in Europe many of the popular pilgrim sites of the, the neo-pagans and new-agers are also the gathering points of neo-nazis, such as Wevelsburg Castle, uh, the SS cult Sanctorum par excellence, and that rock formation at uh, Eckstensteine, the supposed Germanic answer to the Celtic Stone Age. I only mention this in the introduction not because I have a beef with Hancock. I don't. As I said, he is knowledgeable and entertaining, no doubt. I have uh, been reading him for more than a decade, about uh, five years after I started studying history at university. At a point when, I'm not going to say something mysterious happened, because it didn't. (laughs) See, where I come from, university is free, which makes it much easier to hold your breath. And what happens after that amount of time in academia is that one starts to sense the reproductive nature of the entire apparatus. And one can't help but to ponder about the politics of these social sciences. I mention it because my fear is that with this Netflix series, the gates will be wide open for a new curious generation of historical relativism. The dubious ideological aspiration of Hancock's fanbase, however, is not his own fault. It's more a direct consequence of the elitist ostracization performed by established archaeology. But it would be a shame if the energy that is the critique of the bourgeois theory of history would be stripped of its political collective overtones and become an individualist search for truth. Furthermore, I'll say this to Hancock's credit, that his continued emphasis throughout the years since the 90s on there having been a great catastrophe by a cometic impact is starting to really get a foothold. Today quite evidently proved by highly credentialed scientists that at the time of the Younger Dryas, at the end of the last Ice Age, there was a destructive event some 11 to 12,000 years ago. That this event took place, as Graham likes to point out, quite on the money of Plato's estimation of 9600 BC, a date passed down to him as the story goes by Solon, whom in turn heard it from ancient Egyptian intellectuals. And that this date is the exact estimated date of Gobekli Tepe, by the chief German archaeologist Klaus Schmidt is undoubtedly not all mere coincidence. What it really means, I don't know. But we shouldn't start praying to Taiki just because we lack a clear picture. If those scientists studying the impact of the Younger Dryas comet are correct, and Earth was at this time really bombarded with an explosive power that would have been of the order of 10 million megatons, which makes it 2 million times greater in its effects than the former USSR Tsar Bomba, the largest nuclear weapon ever tested, and a thousand times greater than the estimated explosive power, that is 10,000 megatons, 
of all nuclear devices stockpiled in the world today. Why then fuck me? <laughs> Through that eradication of possible archaeological evidence, there is a lot of opened up space to speculate as to what humans might have been up to before that. If I was to elaborate on such a point of lost archaeological evidence in a general theory before we move on, I would say that, well, the ocean and her vessels, with painted sails, leave no trace. Nor is the moving coastline, where most of our big cities are still situated, a great place to store artifacts, tools and other means of production or transport for future scrutiny. And in addition, living with little ecological impact, not leaving a carbon footprint, and passing on a place the way you found it to future generations. All big slogans today was not only how most people lived in prehistoric times, but also this to walk the path without a trace. It is also a central thesis of, for example, Siddhartha Gautama, Lao Tzu, Chuang Tzu and Confucius. And I'm sure the list goes on. And as was often pointed out by the late David Graeber and other more radical archaeologists such as Neil Faulkner, most of the things passed down to us today tells a story especially in the written record of the higher classes and their achievements, or rather what they considered achievements. Also, among the lower classes, when things are intentionally preserved, such as ornaments in a grave for example, they are objects suited for an ideal, lofty afterlife, not necessarily always the best indicators of their real, lived existence. And I might add that when found objects are not understood, they are often deemed to serve a purpose within that idealism. If ideology does not have a history, or in the most psychotic instance, that history doesn't exist, as philosopher and historian Louis Althusser famously put it, then my reading of this is first off, as he writes himself, that this does not mean that there isn't ideology in history, nor that history can't be used as ideology. What he means, I think, is more on the level of ideology being unconscious, and the unconscious is eternal. Thus it is ahistorical. It doesn't need history. History is a relativity to it. One can unfortunately be absolutely convinced of the power of, let's say, the swastika or the cross without knowing anything about the gradual development of the use of those symbols throughout history. Equally, for example, one can be thoroughly convinced of the supposed use of an object, let's say a pot, or a depiction of another object on such a pot, if one only yesterday used one of those objects in a certain way. Jameson and Zizek both developed this further regarding the seeming indestructibility of capitalism. It is constantly in crisis, which makes it appear immortal. It is always dying, but never dies. At the same time, it is put forward as nature or physical laws itself, not socially constructed and not history according to its own ideology. So again, 
It operates on a kind of ahistorical or omnihistorical ever recreation of a new fresh here and now. It does not need retroactivity since it's borrowing from the future and the past. Which means that we are interpolated to assume that what is right now is the pinnacle of everything and capitalism is an Aristotelian wish-fulfilling essence in the sense of his famous example of the giraffe who simply has a long neck because it wishes to have a long neck. Or even more simply, turtles move slow because turtles move slow. This is, I think, even how most people perceive Darwin's theory, that evolution is somehow teleological and thus what is now must be the most fitting of all models for all purposes. Rejecting the fact that history is a long sequence of events trying to avoid the current. And I don't mean to say that history is unfair and that the system that won cheated and shouldn't have won. I'm saying that class society also lost many times before and will lose again. Viewing history in this way, our way, the way of negation, then Counterintuitively, it is the future which is fixed, and the past which changes. Everything depends on an unavoidable retroactive effect, which forces everything to be reconsidered. This is, of course, in a broader sense very much present in the contemporary debate within the practice of archaeology. A debate that seems somewhat idiosyncratic to outsiders which is the extent to which archaeology should be a self-contained discipline. Identified with processualism and with scientific so-called archaeologists such as uh, Graham Clark, the underlying idea is that what is excavated is somehow self-contained and that we should not seek to link its findings with other disciplines such as linguistics, synchronic material culture, and more recently, genetics. A classic formulation of this view is that, quote, pots speak no language, end of quote. A formulation now urged by Colin Renfrew in a reversal of his previously expressed views. Renfrew, for those who don't know, is one of the big authors within the Kurgan Warriors versus Anatolian Farmer hypothesis regarding the question, where did the Proto-Indo-Europeans come from? I'm not going to get into that debate, though I did revisit and read his magnum opus and the contemporary critique last spring, and I saw his surprisingly noble defeat speech, if you like, when talking about his late competitor, Maria Redivia. I say if you like because I don't think there was a victor and a loser in the research. I think the new DNA evidence which neither of them had access to during the 50s to the 80s proved in a way, if it proved anything, that both were right and wrong, namely that history is more complex than previously assumed. Though many times a Hegelian, I will state that there is no wish-fulfilling Weltgeist that moves historically in an ascending, linear fashion, 
there is no point A to point B on the geographic map along which this world spirit called history wanders, bringing development with it such as it did when we first played Microsoft's Age of Empire. People of history are instead moved around by the forces of class struggle, technology and nature itself, here and there, up and down, forward and backwards. Change is the only constant variable. But returning to the Potts speak no language maxim, well here I agree as in so far that there is no continent of authentic meaning production that can be called history in that archaeological objects don't speak for themselves. But at the same time, don't they have a symbolic meaning in themselves? Objects have an unavoidable symbolic place within our register as soon as they are found. Something extra, something extimate, that is, intimate yet external, since they are found by speaking people who cannot but help to assume something about them. The uh, in itself and the for itself are always already entwined like lovemaking serpents. And this something extra which I speak of is of course the context, or rather the assumptions which the phrasing, enunciation, etc. of the context produces. Being the author of it is to have authority to change the what, why and how these pots came to be. And we will undoubtedly navigate out on such dangerous oceans in this miniseries. One precaution that needs to be undertaken when one does that is to remember what Antonio Gramsci scribbled down on a piece of toilet paper in the prison caves of Mussolini's regime. Namely that folklore, and we're talking about new age ideology again, which needs no neo-prefix, since it is ahistorical and ever-present, fueled by that nagging sense of having been fooled, which we have been, don't get me wrong, is the fundamental ideological component of Caesarism, much more so, he points out explicitly, than organized religion. At first, that might seem merely amusing, you know, to imagine Hitler or Franco as the ultimate new ager. But after a while, that notion gets really uncanny and really accurate. Now, I might have said it, but the task that lies before us is still dark and treacherous, and I will fail again and again. So in the words of Fidel Castro, you have the right to dismiss me, cancel me if you must. Material history will absolve me. Bondon. That's enough easting. Set a course south-south-west. Aye, sir. South-south-west. Sail! Two points off starboard bow! Told you! Jack, lucky or otherwise. I've uh, sailed but two times and built a small brackish water raft with my dad when I was a kid. 
and that's about it in terms of not just having bought a cheap ticket for deep sea ferry rides in Shimonoseki, Busan, Nagasaki, Shanghai, Hong Kong and all those other far east harbors. However, one of my countrymen, well, a countryman in so far that I can understand what he says and writes in his mother tongue, a certain Tor Heyerdahl, is someone who would give Captain Cook and the others of the modern British Ocean Pantheon a good run for their money. Hancock, who often emphasizes uh, rightfully that a true explorer of the lost empires cannot rely on books alone but has to walk the walk, or rather, in this case, raise those sails, well, Hancock surely knows that in that sense he has met his superior in Heyerdahl. I will rely quite heavily on this Norwegian in this miniseries, so I think it's only appropriate that I give a short introduction. I would suggest initially that you try to watch some of his documentaries, such as the Kontiki expedition, the Ra expedition, and the Tigris expedition, all central to this hypothesis. If your interest is only marginal, and you feel that 1940s in-the-sea camera footage might be a bit on the heavy side, there is a Norwegian motion picture film from 2013 with really good actors uh, out there called simply Kontiki. That one might not be for free like the documentaries um, on Vimeo and YouTube, but we are going to be dealing with, among many others, the topic of piracy, so I'm sure you will manage. Thor Heyerdahl is a modern-day legend and definitely a mentor of mine. He was born in 1914 and died in 2002. During his life he did some truly get-out-of-town-that's-the-most-insane-thing-I-have-ever-heard explorations. During his university years in the 30s he first became a zoologist, you know, that most benign of the natural sciences, I guess. He must have thought it a bit boring, though, uh, to just pin different butterflies to cardboard. So in the late 30s and the beginning of the 40s, when the Germans invaded Scandinavia, somewhat invited, as they always were in Europe, I might add, he departed from the mad industrial world and went to live with his wife among the aboriginals of the Fatuhiva on the Marques Islands of the French Polynesia, and then in British Columbia with the Quaka Waka Wakas. Uh, not sure if I butchered that. Shout out to Lai Hall again. You can correct me. Um, these trips would inspire him to do what he became famous for. It was here that he noticed strange clues, possible migrations of the native flora and fauna that defied contemporary knowledge of how this world of ours became populated. With the intellectuals of these social formations unhindered by the western direction of thought within the natural sciences, he learned a thing or two about the winds, the ocean streams, and the legacy of an oral tradition that suggests that there had been more awe-inspiring women and men in the past than that spoiled greasy-haired Alexander and the mercury-drinking yellow emperor. Some of the recollections of the past suggested something quite damaging to the proto-capitalist mythology and their house god Columbus. 
namely that the Polynesian islands could have been populated by people from South America. Again, I suggest you watch the film about how he desperately tried to bring this hypothesis to the table of Western Eurocentric academia in the 40s. Anyways, taking matters in his own hands with the help of a group of natives of the Cuevedo forest, they built a vessel out of balsa, according to possibly prehistoric instructions. A wood so light that when dried it exceeds the floating capacity of cork. With four other Norwegians and one Swede on April 28, 1947, over a 97-day journey, they left Peru on this raft called Contiki, an older name of the sun and creator god of the pre-Incas. To Heyerdahl's speculative mind's credit, he had accurately predicted prior to the journey that exactly 97 days would be the minimum required. They aimed for the Humboldt Current, which eventually took them all the way to the small coral atoll, Pukapuka, far off the eastern shores of Australia, in the Tuamotu archipelago of Polynesia. at this point I'm going to have to bum you out and spend some time discussing something at length because if you were to look up the Contiki 
on Wikipedia or read articles from the general debate that took place immediately after Heyerdahl proved all the armchair academic haters wrong. You will not read exclamations such as My God, the nutcase was right after all. Now we have to reconsider a thing or two. No, what you get is bogged down hair splitting saying things like Quote, the basis of the Kontiki expedition was pseudo-scientific, racially controversial and has not gained acceptance among scientists. Cited uh, on Wikipedia as recently as 2003, there was an article in the British arch-conservative Murdoch mouthpiece The Times, a newspaper which for context prior to the Kontiki expedition endorsed the elders of science documents saying that Jews are the world's greatest danger, end of quote. This article from 2003 carried the headline, quote, DNA tests destroys Kontiki theory, end of quote, which is a stupid clickbait title for two reasons. One, because the premise which it states that Thor Heyerdahl held and which inspired him to undertake the journey was to prove that the Incas had sailed to and populated all of Polynesia because the Austronesians without an empire were too stupid to do so or something of that kind. That's simply not the case. <laughs> it's so little the case that already in the English publication of his book Early Man and the Ocean from the 70s it opens up, I mean literally the first paragraph states that this, already the misconception then, is not my theory. I guess the pundit who wrote the article read other half a century old articles from his own newspaper in research for his piece. Even more funny though, and this is the second point, is that the journalist immediately shoots himself in the foot because the DNA evidence which he highlights as his own proof does suggest that on some islands, though far from the majority, there are traces of some uniquely South American gene strains. Which in my opinion does the opposite of destroying any theory about whether pre-Inca people from that continent could have sailed to the Polynesian islands. I'll add that the um, Scandinavian Wikipedia sites, Swedish, Danish and Norwegians, are for obvious reasons kinder and more informative towards the explorer, since we do not carry the burden of having ruled the waves and then lost it all. <laughs> and our seafaring past, we have matured enough to generally look upon it with a sort of morbid dark comedy, trying to deal with a legacy of rape, murder and pillaging. Um, if I was to say something serious about this, it would be that the true explorers went first and then the alcoholics came later to England when the hard work was done and yeah, to the eastern lands as well. Um, which might be a useful rule of thumb for you know other European scenarios as well. Uh, we will see. The lukewarm water drinking English has some way to go in terms of properly rehabilitating the trauma of their own history. But uh, I'm sure they will get there. More importantly, the dogma that Heyerdahl wanted to disprove, which was the actual original motivation for his undertaking, i.e. a negation of the established facts, rather than his own, I would say, multidimensional speculations about a broad range of subjects, goes like this. 
Since the South American Indians had neither the vessels nor the navigating ability to cross the ocean space between their shores and the nearest Polynesian islands, they may be disregarded as the agents of supply. Sir Peter Buck, leading scholar on Polynesia in an introduction to Polynesian anthropology, Honolulu, 1945. On the Atlantic side, the broad expanse of water made immigration impossible. Franz Boas, leading scholar on the origin of American Indians in America and the Old World, International Congress of Americanists, Volume 21, Number 2, 1925. <laughs> Why did I mention this? The dogma of the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean. Well, because despite moronic takes of a conservative journalist whose uh, sole enterprise obviously rests on some desperate attempt at proving the uniqueness of the British Empire and that it alone have ever had the true capacity to circumnavigate the entire globe, blah, 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 something. Others among them, so-called post-colonialists, whom I wrongly often assume to be my intellectual allies, get bogged down in another, more reoccurring kind of hair-splitting. They forget how extremely chauvinist Anglo-American and Germanic, especially anthropological and archaeological academia, and thus established world academia of those fields, were in the 30s and 40s, and they seem to not understand that these were the very Eurocentric winds which the expedition was sailing against. Thus they try to elaborate some kind of crypto-Nordist fetishism at the core of the explorer's belief and cancel him for it, saying that he wanted to prove that a white, blue-eyed, I guess, proto-Viking people sailed from South America to the Polynesians since the Polynesian people who came from the West were too primitive and incapable of such a feat, reserved only for people with red beard. Which, again, is not what he is saying at all. <laughs> he knows from practice, unlike many of these academics, just how advanced Polynesian ships are. And it is even their very advanced nature that will become a problem to this kind of critique as we move, you know, really far back in time to consider the direction of the winds and streams and what really early journey a hollow seed of doubt might take when simply floating as an object of the elements. Again, the fact is, as we will see when we get to recent genome studies, that many Persians and even ancient Egyptians do have red beards, and that Heyerdahl only suggests Asia Minor or North Africa as two of many possible cradles of a deep seafaring prehistoric classless people which he establishes, mind you, not in some one and only fascist historical relativist origin story based on what is said in self-propagating storybooks by, I don't know, the Brahmans, the Tibetan theocracy, or why not, the Old Testament, but rather among the artifacts of a very complex network of archaeological finds that cover the whole globe. And as I said, that globe, our globe, might have had many cradles and harbors. Sometimes I wonder if the field of uh, so-called post-colonial studies is nothing but a bunch of well-paid, predominantly white, bleeding-heart liberals who pick fights where there are none for the sake of, in their own minds, different Aboriginal people and minorities 
who actually want nothing to do with either their categorization, the fetishization of their way of life, or these petty bourgeois supposedly emancipatory projects of giving them a voice through interventional aid, which too often disappears into thin air as soon as anything more than just debate is put on the table. If they, and the armchair archaeologist, would only hold their horses a bit and explain thoroughly what the mystery is about, it would save us a lot of trouble of name-calling and ostracization, etc. Which again will only feed the far-right historical relativism and their batshit crazy hangabout. I cannot stress enough, this whole hypothesis is way too valuable for them to be given on a silver plate of published fantasy novels, websites, documentaries, you know, posing as forbidden history, etc. I'm sure some of you have already marveled in concern at the popularity of this dubious subgenre on Amazon. But that's what you get when the Department of Homeland Security shuts down LibGen and Zbooks while channeling people to Pornhub and the monstrosity of alternative historical nonsense that is the superhero imaginary of DC and Marvel. I'm quite serious. <laughs> but anyways, what's the specific mystery really about? Well. I'll give it my best shot at a short introduction because we will have to return to parts of it in more detail later, mainly because the history of the Americas is far more complicated than Aztecs and Mayans living in the middle and the Incas ruling in the south. Though I would say these details, curious as they are, is in no way fundamental to the greater critique of the doxa. And, you know, I'm always ready to drop the whole thing just so that they don't have anything to stick on us because <laughs> we will go later to a place where we are more well prepared. Anyways, in short, in the 30s and 40s, Thor Heyerdahl read in documents from the early conquistadors of the 1500s that different people of the New World, when the Europeans arrived, told them stories and showed them statues and other artifacts of how they had already been visited before by otherworldly people with pale skin and beards. At the time, so far that anyone bothered to read such old documents and give the stories any practical credit, there wasn't any widespread academic dispute or interest regarding the validity of these stories. Later experts started to wonder whether the Spanish might have lied to exalt themselves as gods. Still though, and this is mentioned in other contexts than seafaring, you know, today, when other experts are trying to answer how much such small bands of European pirates could conquer whole empires. Then, often among the usual shortcoming guns, germs and steel explanation, they often add that the Spanish did exploit the disbelief of them being returnees prevalent among many different people and the ruling classes of Central and South America. Um, these stories are also brought up by Hancock in his Fingerprint of the Gods from 1995, as well as by the pioneer scuba diver and marine archaeologist Robert F. Marks, who wrote the book In Quest of the Great White Gods in 1992. To name a few of the big ones regarding the recent resurgent interest in these topics, uh, the problematization of the Spanish accounts and the 
pre-Columbian transoceanic contact theories in general was put forward in an anthology by Kenneth Mills and William B. Taylor in 1998. Still, I have to add that in that book, that last book, in contrast to the, well actually, way it is being cited on Wikipedia, uh, the book itself does state in various articles that we should be very careful about dismissing the unfathomable depth of all these oral traditions as all being made up by the Spanish to serve their own purposes. Yeah, um, that is a good point. (laughs) That is a very good point. And, uh, you know, a clue lies in the fact that one of these uh, Contiki Viracocha statues in the sacred temple of Cusco was immediately destroyed by Pizarro's bands as they melted down the gold image and smashed the marble statue to pieces, leaving only a written record in which they described the image as being, quote, both as to the hair, complexion, features, raiment and sandals, just as painters represent the Apostle Saint Bartolomeo. End of quote. Which is problematic if they had made up the story to extol themselves. Um, in what way it is problematic, I think is further indicated, uh, not by the biblical references in themselves, which I personally don't feel the need to emphasize or even give credit to, but by the fact that another stone statue of the same depiction was left standing and the Spanish Indian mestizos of Cusco formed a brotherhood adopting this statue of uh, Saint Bartolomeo, you know, within quotations mark, uh, as their guardian. Ultimately, however, when things got too political, we might assume, the Spaniards realized their mistake and the huge temple was destroyed, the bearded statue first disfigured, was later carried off and broken into pieces. Um, Still, you know, I can see where an emphasis on white gods might become racially controversial, uh, as they say, if Thor Heyerdahl, who does carry the name of such a god, were to suggest that Vikings came and civilized the South Americans and created the Inca civilization. But if you, again, only took the time to read what is being said, you would realize that it is seldomly we Scandinavians who fetishize the Norse seamen. Because, well, in my hometown, for example, I walked past five runestones on my way home from school every day. And that elementary school was named after a church ruin from the early years of the last millennium, in which we played. It's just everyday life, you know, not so surrounded in mystique as it is for German historians of the 40s, or the British, Canadian, Irish, Australian and American actors who played in the contemporary Vikings series on Netflix. (laughs) It's just like, (laughs) why are they allowed to do that? (laughs) I don't know. Hedar himself again and again points out that the impressive ships of our dear Vikings were surpassed long before they came around. Um, Regarding the other authors, uh, Robert F. Marx, he does speak more about Vikings and, uh, you know, Hancock mentions them in passing, but none of them go in ariosophic directions. Instead, there are theories about Greeks, Romans, Phoenicians, Egyptians, and so on. 
Um, Heyerdahl, for his own part, mainly speaks about the Vikings in context of Leif Eriksson, who is becoming more and more accepted as the first European to have visited North America via Greenland. When talking about South America, he doesn't ultimately connect those unknown bearded pale men with the Vikings for various reasons. What he says in detail is complex, and as I said, I'll have to return to that interesting story of many nuggets in the next episode, among them red-haired and blonde mummies found not only in the Americas, but also in Hawaii and Egypt, which we will back up again with interesting new DNA evidence that he himself never had access to. Which again is not to say that things only get interesting when mummies have hair that looks like my own, um, to me, they are a signifier not of gospel civilization, which I think often equals class society and a fall, but rather that this lost world community, which we are looking for, was much more diverse, welcoming and mobile than we are led to believe. problem regarding this standardized uh, critique of Heydal and the wave of experimental anthropology that he unleashed is that he uh, actually quite often, as I said already, this is the Vikings. He does so because they have wooden ribbed boats which are not his cup of tea. As a matter of fact, as we will see, his whole thesis and the true motivation of his explorations is based on the distinction between these two intersecting lines of evolution of seafaring crafts, which I will get into in more detail in the future. For now, let it be known that one consists of assembling a wash-through vessel from components which are themselves buoyant, i.e. tending to float in a fluid, until the resulting formation has a sufficient buoyancy to carry the required crew and cargo. The second is the construction of a watertight hull, which owes its buoyancy not to the material of which it is built, but to the displacement of water by air. You could think of the iron that creates steam cruisers, for example, which floats, but when made into a coin, sinks even though they are made of the same metal. 
Heyerdahl prefers not the European kind of the second and the first millennium. He prefers the really, really old reed boats and the rafts. Furthermore, regarding who might be white in the eyes of the Incas, Heyerdahl does suggest among many other notations that these bearded people could have been Arabs, or why not some undiscovered African people setting out from Cape Verde, which is still strategically located on major north-south sea routes and ocean currents which one of the Norwegian's future expeditions passed right through. He quotes uh, the history of the discovery and the conquest of the Canary Islands, translated into English by G. Glass in 1764 from an old Spanish manuscript found on the island of Palma. In the text appears the following quotation from, quote, the Nubian geographer's third climate, end of quote, concerning remote Atlantic lands visited by roaming Arabs. Quote, in the sea is also the island Sa'ali, in which is found a kind of men like women, their breath like the smoke of burning wood, and the men are only distinguished from the women by the organs of generation. They have no beards and are clothed with the leaves of trees. This remarkable description merits attention, Herdal says, since, he, since the Guanches of the Canary Islands, like the Berbers of the African mainland, were as strongly bearded as the Arabs themselves. They dressed in sheepskins and furthermore had been known to Semitic peoples since Phoenician times. But American Indians are beardless. This was in fact the physical trait that most surprised the Spaniards when they arrived, and tobacco smoking was practiced among Caribbean tribes, many of whom went about nude or dressed in skirts made from palm leaves in contrast to people known to the Arabs in the Old World. To my knowledge, such a suggestion would not sit well with a true Eurocentric, since as far as I know, most of them do not uphold Moorish Spain as the final intervention that made their continent great again. He also spoke of the seafaring talents of the First Nations of British Columbia, but we will return to that when talking about the various possible Pacific routes, their trade winds, strong streams, currents and the far-flung timber that naturally floats on to the beaches of Hawaii from the east. If I was to state all pre-Columbian transoceanic theories, we would be here all day. Some belong to a tradition of skepticism towards the accepted theories, others are only there to proclaim the superiority of their own religion or their people. And uh, in that body of work we have everything from Inuit stories, Icelandic sagas, Chinese tales, the lost tribes of Israel, not to forget the recent interest of some American rappers' eagerness to draw attention to the noses of the Olmec statues, supposedly African noses. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the term, since I'm not updated on hip-hop phrenology, uh, which unfortunately for some of their theories are also very common among Central Americans. But then again, if polemics are allowed to cool a bit, we could use even that and say that it is indeed an interesting phenomenon that we all look so similar. And if you consider the latest genetic evidence that the first people to arrive in Scandinavia after the Ice Ages, my own prehistoric ancestors, 
uh, whom to the great disappointment of the Schutzstaffel Intelligentia were black-skinned <laughs> and blue-eyed, then we must eventually let go of many of our ethnic bearings in our search for the prehistoric seafarers. Not to steer too far, of course, to find a shortcut already. If there is any confusion regarding Heyerdahl's intentions, one could also read this passage from his book, Early Man and Ocean. Quote, I hope we of European extraction are surely not so blinded by our own history that we consider ourselves a line of Übermensch, able to do four centuries ago what the great civilizations of Asia Minor and North Africa could not have done earlier. It must not be forgotten that these people of antiquity had skills and capacities that far surpassed anything done in the same fields in Europe during the Middle Ages. The Egyptians and their neighbors in Mesopotamia and Phoenicia knew more about astronomy, the key to ocean navigation, than any Europeans contemporary with Columbus, Cortes and Pizarro. And the Phoenicians, in collaboration with the Egyptians, were circumnavigating Africa at the time of the pharaoh Neko, 2,000 years before Columbus set sail in an ocean that Europeans believed was filled with dragons and ended at the horizon in a precipice. We marvel at the abilities of the ancients as embodied in the pyramids and obelisks, sophisticated mathematics and calendar systems profound literature and philosophy, perfect mastery of maritime architecture, as evidenced by the functional form and complex rigging of their ships of planks and reeds 5,000 years ago, and their skill in exploration and colonization as revealed by the numerous archaeological vestiges of Phoenician settlement all the way down the Atlantic coast of Morocco, dating back 3,000 years. But is it realistic to stand in awe of such achievements only to deny these ancients the ability to do what Pizarro did with a handful of men in a subsequent age beset by ignorance and superstition? Question mark, end of quote. I think the assumptions regarding the Norwegian explorer are the returns of a repressed dichotomy between the isolationist and the diffusionist. Isolationism, which is an intellectual tradition that began during the Industrial Revolution, when the more Europeans got used to modernity, the less they trusted the past and what they were capable of. Thus they hold that the new and the old world have been completely separated ever since pulses of hunters walked across the Bering Strait and eventually populated the whole of America. This is of course linked with theories such as the Clovis first model, which I'm sorry for repeating myself, we will have to talk about in later episodes. They also tend to have a flair of Asperger being very, this is this civilization and that is that civilization. Upholders of uh, imaginary sometimes useful borders, which quickly get blurred when one dives into archaeological evidence of the Mediterranean history alone. The diffusionist, uh, which one might then spontaneously assume that Heyerdahl is a proponent of, since he clearly is not an isolationist, um, even though he goes to great length to show that it is a tradition equally worthy of critique, 
believes that all kinds of things are possible, since in the most extreme cases, ultimately, it all comes from one very capable source of people. <laughs> and, I, and I guess you know where this is going. The diffusionist school, even before the Nazis co-opted its stance with the less biblical overtones, once shared by many of the Judeo-Christian inclination, uh, which I hinted at in my Halloween special, had its strongest school in, well, you guessed it, <laughs> Austria, at a time when Heyerdahl moved to live with his wife in Polynesia because he could no longer stand the Europeans. Now, what is interesting, though, is that before the isolationists became temporarily victorious due to Lanz von Liebenfeld's uh, pan-Germanic historical relativism becoming somewhat uh, synonymous with the image of extreme diffusionism, one can find some pretty funny arguments during the time when the argument that someone was an Ariosov uh, wasn't yet invented. Heydal writes, With the almost general acceptance of the logic of the independent invention alternative, a whole series of formerly convincing diffusionist arguments for global voyages lost impact. Whenever diffusionists emerged with a new case of old and new world parallels to argue contact across the Pacific or the Atlantic, the argument was predestined to be labeled not proven. A perusal of the diverse material produced to bolster the view that others besides pedestrians from Siberia reached pre-Columbian America fails to show a single piece of evidence accepted as conclusive by the isolationists. In those cases where they cannot for some reason counter-propose independent uh, evolution, as with certain culture plants or artifacts too special for coincidence, isolationists have suggested post-Columbian introduction. If even this uh, found to be unacceptable, the last resort has been to propose that the seed of the plant or the prototype of the artifact could have been found by American Indians on the beach after it had made an unmanned drift across the ocean. It has been argued that the strictly American sweet potato had drifted from Peru to Polynesia caught in the roots of a fallen tree and that the highly specialized Easter Island type of stone fish hook had drifted to the Santa Barbara region in an empty Polynesian canoe or was found by Aboriginal American fishermen in the mouth of a fish which had snatched the line of a Polynesian fisherman. End of quote. Today less people take as staunch of a line within this polemic, but uh, if one was to take a look at where archaeological funds are being spent, it's very much, if not the Bible country, then surely Mediterranean. The exception being to a degree East Asia, especially since China got back on its feet in this field in the 70s. All in all, we are left with a passive-aggressive neoliberal model which might look like a compromise between isolationists and diffusionists of pure science, but which tends to be very elitist, compartmentalized, filled with idiosyncratic experts, and anybody who has a new big picture is a possiedo something. And this is, I think, ultimately the real reason for the standardized vicious critique of oppositional skeptics, the quality of which varies greatly, just as the quality of the well-funded and well-connected official authorities varies. 
The reason is that once archaeological excavations are over and things have been found, suddenly that previously very high barrier of being able to afford excavations or being a collector disappears and a much broader spectrum of participants can take part in the scientific process of analyzing the finds and what they might mean. An interesting class dialectic within the field of science that deals with the big questions of where do we come from, why are we here, and where are we going. Something which was pointed out and emphasized during the great proletarian cultural revolution, when the intelligentsia of the CCP set out to make archaeology a popular science, and soldiers carrying shovels to dig out the terracotta statues of Xi'an while never having fired a gun in an imperialist war, why, that's my kind of people's liberation army. And speaking of controversial topics, we shouldn't simply think that all those deemed fringe today are merely redressing Nazi theories in New Age garment. I mean, many of them are, consciously as crypto-fascists, or as unconscious useful idiots, which is why I'm making this miniseries uh, in part as a more theoretical elaboration on the Halloween short story. As you recall, that story tried to show how this marriage of useful idiots and secret exploiters was present all the way from Blavatsky's Theosophy to Steiner's Anthroposophy and then finally Liebenfeld's Ariosophy, to name just one of the many veins. But if you go back earlier, you can find alternative theories about Aryans that are not necessarily anti-Semitic, xenophobic or chauvinist, or even lends itself as easily to such aspirations as Slavic theories about root race origins, René Guion's French colonial metaphysical sublimations, or Carl Jung's geographical fundamentalism. Many of them are still lacking, I think, since I would first like to see a plurality of seaborne original harbors, and furthermore I would like to go further back than the hierarchical nobility of the Indus Valley or the Kurgan warriors, if uh, that's what we are talking about when we say Aryan. But take the not very known Abraham Fernander, for example, an immigrant who uh, once a whaler uh, in 1838 arrived in Hawaii after having slept with his aunt back in Sweden, married a native chiefess of Molokai in Honolulu, became a journalist, later a judge, and finally a Hawaiian government official with a special pardon of the island's royal family. A position he used in order to expand secularized public schooling that would include women in an attempt to bring an end to the quote, civilizing attempts of the Protestant missionaries who were busy culturally eradicating the traditions of the entire Pacific with their white god. Well, he, in his own curious way, tried to re-establish a sense of dignity among the Hawaiians as the highest seafaring combination of an Aryan diaspora that went back to India via the Malay archipelago. Or take Percy Smith, the New Zealander who made use of Fernander's ethnographic technique, which places great emphasis on oral tradition and actually listening to native people when putting together a picture of their own history. In this particular case, the Maori and their great fleet. Well, his theories are called out as falsifications today by archaeologists and the New Zealand government. Now, I don't mean to say that this great fleet theory of the Polynesians is true in every regard, 
I'm saying it's a collection of pieces of the puzzle. I would even go so far as to say that if you are not a positivist and you don't naively assume that eventually we will have all the pieces and all will be revealed, hallelujah, because it will not, sorry to break it to you, then if continued reinterpretations of such stories can keep islanders away from worshipping the culture of a white Roman god in the Vatican and instead feel at home in their own traditions, even in the modern era, and most importantly, radicalizing them, then it should be taught in school. Schooling an elevation to a higher political consciousness which spans beyond the nation-state borders of alienating three colored flags that has divided these many, many island groups according to a different set of criteria than ocean streams. Favorite star constellations to follow when in high sea dire straits, preferred techniques of diving and surfing or on how to prepare drinks like kava kava. I mean, you know you are dealing with a collective of extremely marginalized people when you realize how many times their territories have been nuked by various governments. A vision which was partially described to me by a new Caledonian comrade whom I worked with a long time ago in Brisbane when we teamed the graveyard shift at some reception. Now, I don't know about you, dear listener, but I, for one, would indulge in new stories about the entire cruise ships of pensioners of economic history being held for cash app ransom by pan-Polynesian hoxaist pirates and Maoist island guerrillas. But uh, maybe some Commonwealth unofficial officials already thought about that, and that's why an indigenous story of a great fleet is such an abomination. There is great potential in genome studies. I'll return to them again and again, but seriously, who wants to be just a fucking haplogroup Latin letter abbreviation in a computer-generated flowchart? Nobody wants to be that. Anyways, back to the real voyages of Heyerdahl. He didn't stop where most would have, after accomplishing what his crew and the builders had accomplished with the Contiki. No. Instead, he again put his very life in the hands of ancient non-white traditions and the technical know-how of some of the most marginalized people on the planet. First came the Papyrus Bodra One, built by Chad Reed experts with knowledge passed down since before the pyramids from generation to generation. In 1969, they sailed across the bloody Atlantic from the once Phoenician port of Saf in Morocco to the Bahamas, basically on a boat made of grass, ladies and gentlemen. Due to the damaging notions of again the very dominant Anglo-Saxon Egyptologists' assumptions about reed boats, they deviated from the ancient plants found on petroglyphs, mural paintings and, and that which the Chadian builders insisted upon in one minor detail. This detail consists, or rather the mistake, is based on assumption as to what the crescent reed boats were really supposed to do and why they were built in that crescent shape. If you are somewhat versed in the contemporary discussions, uh, you will know that orthodox Egyptologists have a necrophilic tendency to think that most artifacts found in Egypt have some magical superstitious purpose rather than material, dare we say, mechanical or functional reasons for being. I will elaborate on this when outlining the history of navigation, not of the afterlife, mind you.
but at the actually existing salty high and deep sea. For now, let's merely recognize that this first attempt by Ra-1 broke apart in American waters, just 200 miles, 300 kilometer short of the 3,200 mile, 5,100 kilometer journey. Not one to give up, the Norwegian consulted the only other known people on this planet to still be in the possession of how reed boats like those that are seen on the artifacts from before the first North African pharaonic dynasties are built. The Aymara Indians from Lake Titicaca, today located on the border between Bolivia and Peru, 3,812 meters above sea, and withdraw too, again, Departing from that old, very old Phoenician port in Morocco, we find on board Yuri Senkevich, a ship doctor from the Soviet Union, Norman Baker from the United States of America, navigator and telegrapher and the only one with a professional seamanship background in the crew, Santiago Genoves, material manager from Mexico, George Surayal, an underwater expert from Egypt, Carlo Mauri, cinematographer from Italy, Japanese Kei Ohara, another photographer, and finally the Berber Madani Ait Uhani from Morocco, who was taking contamination samples of the ocean throughout the journey, which eventually led to a ban on dumping oil spills by tankers. They stuck together through storm and tall waves dependent on a vessel that had not proved its documented worthiness for many hundreds of years. Fifty-seven days later, having crossed the sea which swallowed the Titanic, they made it to the sandy shores of the Caribbeans, crew and boat unharmed. This one right here is for the people. Can you read thoughts? Can you read palms? Uh, 
can you predict the future? Can you see storms coming? The earth was flat, if you went too far, you would fall off. Now the earth is round, if the shape change again, everybody would have start love. The average man can't prove up most of the things that he chooses to speak of. And still run research and find out the root of the truth that you seek of. Scholars teach in universities and claim that they're smart and cunning. Tell them find a cure when we sneeze and that's when their nose start running. And the rich get stitched up when we get cut. Wanna heal them broken bones in the bush with the wet mud. Can you resize? Can you restart? Can you make peace? Can you fight war? Can you milk cows? Even though you drive cars, uh, can you survive against all odds now? Who wrote the Bible? Who wrote the Quran? And was it a lightning storm that gave birth to the earth and then dinosaurs were born? Who made up words? Who made up numbers? And what kind of spell is mankind under? Everything on the planet we preserve and can it. Microwave it and try it, no matter what will survive it. What's you? What's man? What's human? Anything along the land we consuming. Eating, deleting, ruin. Trying to get paper. Gotta have land, gotta have acres. So I can sit back like Jack Nicholson, watch the play the game like the Lakers. In a world full of 52 fakers, gypsies, seances, mystical prayers. You superstitious, throw so over your shoulders, make a wish for the day, cuz. Like somebody got a doll of me, sticking needles in my artery, but I can't feel it. Sometimes it's like part of me, but I got a real big spirit. A fearless, a fearless. Don't you try to grab hold of my soul. Like a military soldier since seven years old. I held real dead bodies in my arms. Felt their body turn cold. Oh, why are we born in the first place if this is how we gotta go? Damn. Savali. Patience. Yeah.